Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean for Liberal Arts for Southern New Hampshire University's online history programs. We wrapped up our miniseries on how to do research and write research papers uh, last time, but I kept the gang together to discuss one last question posed all the time by history majors. Should I go to grad school in history? Now, there is no right or wrong answer to that, as we will see, but it's a hugely important question, and one that is not to be answered lightly. To help me answer that heavy question, again, are Eric Grasinger, Allison Millward, C.B. Repass, Matt Chandler, and Ryan Tripp, who are here to share their own grad school experiences. Before we get into it, we should keep in mind that there are two levels to graduate school in history. The master's degree, which will take, on average, two to four years, and a doctorate, which will take anywhere from four years to, well, possibly the rest of your life. We are going to focus on the PhD decision uh, mostly today, but we will discuss the master's option a bit here and there. Okay, so what do you all say when students ask you if they should go to grad school for history? My knee-jerk reaction would be, I would like you to, but we have to answer a series of questions before you can even make that determination. And this depends also on what you want to do with your PhD. So for example, someone getting a PhD in the uh, medical sciences, right? Let's say someone's getting an MA PhD. Okay. This is going to be a very different answer than it is for history. Okay. So it really does depend on the discipline. And for history, one of the things that I've found to be the case, and this was echoed by pretty much everybody I've ever talked to, getting a PhD in history is significantly more challenging than a number of other professions, another other disciplines. I'm not suggesting we're better than anybody else. What I'm suggesting is the creation of a huge manuscript that is your original work. If you're in biology, physics, chemistry, you're piggybacking usually off the research of your advisor. You already have sort of a pre-made roadmap. When you try to pursue the PhD in history, you are working from scratch, right? You will be writing most likely for years on your own. Uh, you probably hopefully getting guidance from your advisor, but there's a chance that you just go off and write for a year and that could be in the wrong direction. So what needs to take place is you really need to have a clear understanding before you even start to apply is, am I committed to this for real? It is a lot of work. So at the MA level in a traditional program, what I tend to find is you're going to write around, say, three book reviews every week, and you're going to read three monographs every week. Okay. At the PhD level, that workload would be light, right? So it's scary to say, but let's say you are reading five to 900 pages in a week. That would not be uncommon. Okay. And if the idea of reading a thousand books is intimidating to you, that's okay, but that is going to come up in your comprehensive exams down the line. So you need to really understand what you're about to get into before you even start the process. So it's important for you to talk to people who have PhDs in history. It's important to talk to people who have experience with the process, because if you ask somebody who isn't part of the process, you might have the best academic advisor in the world. But if they have not pursued the PhD in history, they don't know what to tell you about that except for secondhand information. So what I determine is the following. Are you really making original contributions to your main area of specialization? Do you have original concepts that you can apply? Are you willing to dedicate your entire life to the practice of history? Are you willing to put aside gainful employment for a, period, a, a long period of time so you can pursue your PhD? Do you have the financial resources? But here's where something can be a little bit tricky, and this might upset some people. I tend to argue that unless you have an assistantship in some form, a graduate assistantship, a research assistantship, or a teaching assistantship, a full stipend, in other words, a full ride, you're already competing against people who have that stuff, and they're already at an advantage over you. Okay. Unfortunately, this is not a kumbaya situation. 
professional academia is a brutal, brutal existence. It is. It's wonderfully fulfilling, but it is intensely competitive. It is highly, highly individualized, and you are competing against other people all the time, right? So let's say you are a historian of the Civil War. Great. Wonderful. Is it a study topic? Yes. Is it super saturated? Arguably, sure. So if you're an expert on the Civil War, you really need to be able to carve out an interpretative niche for yourself so you can do your research, get a job teaching, and so on. But my point here is you if you're already starting at which would be considered disadvantageous positions, if you're paying out of pocket, you're going to go into debt, significant debt. If you're taking out loans, you're going to go into significant debt. So the other thing, even, even when you have all these financial assistantships, you're required to be in residence for at least one year in the majority of programs that I'm aware of, which means you're also not allowed to have any other job. So if you do take on the financial assistance from your institution, they will bar you from getting other gainful employment. That was my experience anyway. It might be different, but that was my experience. Um, and as I understood it, it was rather common for other people who were pursuing PhDs. So for instance, I accepted an assistantship that barely could pay my grocery bill in a month. Right. And that was the only income that I was able to legally get through my school. So what I did at the time is I started to become a day trader. OK, so I actually while I was doing my Ph.D., I was actively trading stocks while I was doing my Ph.D. It took me a longer period of time to get my Ph.D. But when I left with my Ph.D., I wasn't in the hole to the point where I'm $500,000 in debt, $250,000 in debt or what have you. Because you need to remember a lot of my friends who just have, not just, they have bachelor's degrees. They are $250,000 in debt. My friend who's a, a GP, a medical doctor, he's $500,000 in debt. That's where I got those two figures that weren't completely arbitrary. Uh, but I do really think that if you cannot sit through a peer reviewed paper that's say 25 to 30 pages in one sitting, if you can't read a full monograph in a in a week, if you can't focus for extended periods of time, and you really don't have a passion for history, no, absolutely not. You should not get a PhD in history. Okay, I, that's my that, that's that is my view. Okay, um, now the problem that I have is sometimes there is enthusiasm on behalf of the student, and they want to pursue the PhD even with all of these things as no's. I, if they still want to do it, that's your choice. You make the choices in your own life. You are the advocate for your future. So again, if you don't have all these wonderful tools at your disposal, sure, you can still get the PhD and you'll probably still be a wonderful professor in the future. But this is something that really does become a full-on life-changing determination, right? This isn't just getting a job at a tech company and then being able to transfer to another tech company. You are now committing yourself to what would be a lifelong pursuit of historical knowledge, right? And that's really fun. It's incredibly fulfilling, but it's also deeply frustrating. The politics of academia are not always fun to deal with, right? We, as you've all seen lately, external forces are now entering into the academic world and telling us what we can and can't do. That also creates additional pressures and burdens and anxieties for the scholar. So if you are able to balance your time, if you are good at time management, if you don't procrastinate excessively, if you are a voracious reader, if you're an accurate note taker and you love history, yes. But if it's something that you're just doing because you don't know what to do after you graduate, I don't think that's the right choice. I don't. Uh, and I will admit in my case, I, this is not the PhD, this is the master's. I didn't know what to do when I graduated with my bachelor's degree. So my natural inclination was to either go to medical school or to go to uh, get a master's in either political science or in history. And I ended up getting the MA in history. And then after that fact, I said, oh, I'm already on this path. I'm going to continue. And I continued. Do I regret it? Not at all. Is it a difficult life? Yes, it is. And even if you are a fully tenured professor at something like MIT, you know, it still could be a very difficult existence. So there's a lot of things to consider. But if you are applying to PhD programs, I also will make a recommendation that some might disagree with. I think you should apply to a lot of schools. I don't think you should pigeonhole yourself into, say, three or four applications. I think that's a mistake because, again, it is very competitive. There are very few slots. But 
if you do apply to say 15 schools, I know that sounds ins- almost like insane, borderline insane. There are two, there are uh, um, application waivers that you can apply for, so it doesn't become ruinously financially. But I, I think it's a good idea to apply to something between 10 and 15 PhD programs. But you also have to pick a PhD program that aligns with your interests, right? You don't just apply willy nilly. You look at the faculty. You say, all right, I might want to work with this person. They're an expert in the history of the American West. I have an interest in the history of the American West. Maybe they'd want to take me on as as a student, right? Uh, so these are these are considerations that you have to think through. You can't rush this choice, and it has to be a choice that you are. You can be nervous, anxious, you know, absolutely, and you you should be also excited about this prospect. But it is something that is a bigger choice than what might feel at the time. It is, you can change your career at any time, right? I could go be a tech analyst right now. But for me, being a historian, either in the classroom and doing research, that's what I really love. That's what I have a passion for. And for me, my life is too short to not do what I like to do, right? And that's why I think it's important. But you have to make that choice for yourself. But it is not an easy choice. And it is one that you have to consider with, a realist worldview, not an idealistic worldview in my in, in my in my perspective. Then remember, I'm just one person here. You might get 20 different answers, but you don't, in my view, you don't want to put yourself in a position where you're starting your academic career already behind somebody else who has conferred advantages upon them that you don't have. Right. And remember, this is the real world. This is not some uh, utopia. And that's why I'm kind of giving the answer that I'm giving. Right. Um, It's not to try to scare people away from getting the Ph.D., but I I think people think of the Ph.D. Oh, yeah, I get to be called doctor. That's so cool. It is really freaking cool. And it's, it's, it's satisfying, but it's a lot of work. And again, writing a 300 to 500 page dissertation. That's a big operation in and of itself. So you have to have all the things from thesis to hundreds and hundreds of resources, and you need to be the expert. There's no waffling. You have to be the subject matter expert. You need to know more than everybody else on that topic. That's that's something that you also have to be prepared for. And that's a burden too. And that's a sense of pressure. You know. Yeah, if a student asks me, should I get a PhD in history? I am... Obviously, I'm not going to make the decision for for the student. Of course not. Of course course, right. But what I'm going to do is to, before you can answer, should I get the PhD in history, is the student needs to be informed of all aspects of the PhD and what comes after the PhD. You've touched on a bunch of it. But, you know, what is actually expected of a PhD student? Uh, you're going to come into it. You're going to be taking classes for the first couple of years. Those classes are going to be read a book every week for every course and then talk about that book every week in that course. Uh, and so if you're taking two or three courses, like you said, you're reading two or three full books a week. And while you're doing that, you're supposed to be doing readings on top of that that are going to get you towards your dissertation topic, that are going to work towards your general exams, your comprehensive exams. It's called different things at different universities. But you, so you do this for a couple of years. You read a lot and you thousands talk about of sources, thousands of sources, thousands, yes, uh, hundreds of books, plus a whole bunch of articles, plus a whole yeah. bunch of primary sources. Yes. That's what historians do. They read. This is parenthetically. This is why I laugh whenever I hear a student complain that there's too much reading. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's never too much reading no. in a history <laughs> program. That no. it's just that's not a thing. End parentheses. The so you take your first couple of years are taking those courses, then and also usually while you're taking those courses, if you've got one of those tuition waivers and assistantships that uh, that Matt was talking about, you're also you're also teaching a class. Usually you're not teaching a class on your own. Usually you're a, a TA, a teaching assistant, where you'll be grading papers or running discussion sections, depending on the size of the lecture that you're working with, which means, you know, you've got a lecturer who lectures to the class three days a week. The other two days a week, you take part of that class and you talk about readings with them. So you're teaching kind of, you're a teaching assistant, but you're doing that while you're also taking those classes and reading all of the, all of those books and all of that. Then at the end of a few years, you're ready to take your exams. 
and your exams, Matt, I don't know if your experience was the same as mine, but that was probably the most traumatic experience of my life doing the general exams, because this is when you are responsible for knowing those thousands of books that you've been reading, those thousands of, docu of documents and not necessarily primary sources, because usually your general exams are focused more on the secondary sources, but all the books and articles that you've ever read, you need to be able to lay out in a very short, efficient way that you demonstrate your expertise and knowledge of the entirety of the existing literature on the topic. And so on, in my case, it would, my major, my fields were, my major field was modern U S uh, minor field was, was early U S and a minor field was Latin America. That means I had three written exams that I had to answer, basically describe the historiographical debates of those three topics, the historiographical debates on modern U S history, is something that somebody could spend a thousand, you know, a thousand years doing, <laughs> but I've got 48 hours because they're timed. At least in my, in my example, it was, you've got 48 hours, you've got 20 pages. Um, to, and then at the end of the 48 hours, you turn in that 20 pages and you hope that you've done enough to satisfy the, the committee. And then you turn around the next day and you start your minor field. You've got 24 hours to write 10 pages. You do that. And then you've got another 24 hours to write another 10 pages. And you just, at the end of it, you are the most tired that you've ever been in your life. And then you have the oral defense, at least in my experience, where the committee brings, they print out all those papers. You come into a committee room and they start grilling you on what you just wrote. <laughs> and it's the most, it's the general exams for, you know, at my university, that was, that was the trial by fire. And it was, and if you survived that, you're probably going to be okay. But a lot of people didn't survive it. Now, the 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 problem with those, of course, is, is that you, not, it's not a problem. But the reality of it is that if your advisor is any good, you should pass those exams. They should never set you up for failure by sending you to those exams when you're if you're not ready for it. But that's something that you're going to have to to navigate as a grad student, as a PhD student, is how how can I get to the point where I'm going to be able to pass this thing, and then you move on to actually teaching your own course and then you start doing the dissertation research and then you start writing the dissertation and so your last few years are writing the dissertation and so the pro the, the process is a big series of obstacles and hurdles that you have to come you have to overcome and then yes at the end of it you're a doctor and that's awesome um, but then you have to deal with what comes after graduation which is finding a job and the problem there is that the vast majority of PhD students have been trained to become full-time history professors. Then we run into the problem where the job market for history professors is almost non-existent these days. Nobody is hiring. I can't say nobody because there's always a few jobs out there, but you might have three jobs out there and 800 applicants looking to get those three jobs because you've got 800 PhD graduates who are looking for that full-time job as a full-time tenure track history professor. And those jobs are just ceasing to exist because universities are pinching, you know, they're tightening the belt. Uh, public funds are drying up for a lot of universities. And so a lot of universities are trying to cut costs. And just like with any business that's trying to cut costs, where you go is your personnel. And so there's a lot of tenure lines that are disappearing and they're just not hiring full-time professors anymore. Most universities are now hiring adjunct professors, which is, um, there are good and bad, <laughs> um, you know, good and bad points to the, what we call the adjunctification of academia. But the reality is that the vast majority of PhD graduates are not going to get that full-time uh, history professorship that they've been dreaming about for so long. Very few of us that graduated back in my day got that, got those jobs either. And so what I'm getting at with all of this is that I want students before they can answer the question, should I get a PhD in history? They need to know all of that information. They need to know what is the, the actual, you know, the gauntlet of grad school look like? What are the actual things that I have to do? But then also what are the odds of getting what I want at the end of the process? And if your goal, if you're in it for personal fulfillment, well, then, you know, the job market at the end of it may not matter to you because you, you're doing your personal fulfillment. I like this. This was fun. 
I, you know, I got something out of it. That's great. But if you're, you know, if, if you're, if your measure of success is becoming a tenure track professor at the end of it, that's not likely to happen. And so that's my, um, that's the thing that I always want students to know before I can really even go into more about, you know, should you, should you, or shouldn't you, because you most likely, if you're thinking and if, if you're asking and thinking that you want to become a grad student, you want to get a PhD, you're probably good enough. I mean, you're probably you already have the interest that's tri that's causing you to ask for it. That's a good sign just by itself. And so odds are you probably would do well in a PhD program. But you have to keep in mind what are the you know, what are, what are the consequences of that decision? Because you've, you're going to put you're going to put 10 years of your life into it maybe more, maybe less, depending on your topic and all of that. I ended up putting six years into my PhD, but I also put four years into my MA <laughs> and I put four years into my, into my BA. So I put a lot of years into history. And so at the end of it, when I graduated with my PhD, I had put, you know, 15 years or so of my life into this. And you only got one of, life. You only got one, one life. life. And right. so at the end of the process, is it worth the 15 years that I gave up the job that I get at the end of it? What do you think? What is it worth it to you? To me, it was, for it you, was worth it. You can only ask for, for yourself, right? For me personally, it was worth it. Me too. I, I recognize fully that I got lucky because I did get a full-time job. This, my job now that I have now, uh, um, is rewarding. It, I have, I am able to work with historians every day. I work with historical, you know, the curriculum of history classes every day. Um, my job is to guarantee the rigor of the history curriculum at SNHU. I got very lucky and I recognize that because I know that there's a lot of people out there that could do this job just as good as I can. Um, and I got very, I got very lucky. And I, you know, the, um, I also did the full-time adjunct gig for a few years before I got this. And so I know what that life is like also. And it's not, it's not an easy it's, life. It's not an easy life. And I actually, when I was doing the full-time adjuncting thing, I peaked teaching nine classes at five different campuses. In Me one too. Semester. Nine and four. Nine and four. Yeah. 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 And so after doing that, you know, the paycheck was nice, but I could, that's not a sustainable um, schedule. And so I actually started going back to school to get a, a to get a, a, a degree in paralegal studies because I just I needed to find something else. <laughs> and then I did. So I was working on that degree. And then suddenly this this job came through. And I so I so I got I got lucky. And I know that a lot of other people didn't get this lucky. Um, and so, th again, the decision of was it worth it? Yeah, that's a personal decision that everybody has to make on their own. For me, it was worth it. It worked out. And I'm happy that I'm happy that I did it. One thing we do have as one thing we do have as historians, though, that the scientists sciences don't always have, is we do have the MA stop along the way. So that is a, it is a good. Uh, can I do it at the MA level? And if you thrive at the MA level, less so than the PA, BA level. If you thrive at the MA level, you're going to set yourself up for success at the PhD level. But uh, Rob, I had a question for you. Uh, you had said you had 48 hours for your we call them comps, comprehensive exams at my at my school. Um, you were, did you have access to notes and books and stuff or it was, well, that, that was the tricky. Yeah. You could choose. Cause how would they stop cheating today? If that was the case, that's well, you had, you had, you had a choice. You could, um, either, um, you could do it at, you could do it on campus. In, like me. Okay. Okay. You, could, a, you okay. could do it. There is the option like mine. Okay. So you could, yeah, you could do it in an office on campus. Right. Um, you get, but you get, a, you get less time. You get like eight hours to do it. I got, I got, I had four fields. I had six, four, 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 four. Uh, so no notes, yeah. no nothing locked in a room, no internet, uh, a laptop that has uh, the, the actual radios taken out. So you can't connect to the internet at all. You back yeah. up to a USB stick just in case, you know, so you don't lose your work. They lock you in a room for six hours for your major field. You're asked one question. And you have to write on one question with no notes for six hours. And yep. then the next day, you come for your first minor field and it's four hours, no notes, maybe two questions for four hours. And you have to write the whole time. You cannot waste. So that's something we didn't really 
tease out or parse apart is the transition from being a PhD student to a PhD candidate. And the comps for me were where we make that differentiation. When you start actually being a dissertation focused person as opposed to a class driven uh, student. One last thing I just wanted to add about my experience at the PhD program, which is a consideration, is sometimes you might take undergraduate classes and you'll have additional work on top of the undergraduate work. So you'll do all the undergraduate workload and then your teacher will add additional PhD level work. So you're effectively kind of, oh, it is kind of like taking two classes at the same time. So it, it, it could increase your workload. Now you're going to get a lot of awesome experiences, but if you're the PhD student in a room full of undergraduates, you need to know the answer every time. Because when there's a lull in the conversation, like you've probably seen in some of your undergraduate classes, the professor looks right at you and you got to give the answer. And when you're the TA, if your teacher, if your advisor, your professor, whatever, has a momentary lapse of consciousness or something, forgets the world, you have to answer the question, right? So I remember one time my my advisor, he couldn't remember something. We're doing a world history and technology class. He couldn't remember something that happened in India in like the 1500s. And he looked directly at me and I'm like, uh, luckily I remembered, but it was not something I really knew. I just happened to remember. And it was like, everyone's like, how did he know that? It's totally lucky, right? But uh, that that was fun. But it's 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 fulfilling. It's worth it. And remember, even although I do think it's a lifelong commitment, if if it doesn't work out, having the credentials of a PhD, they do make you very marketable for other things. Don't forget. Don't forget that the well-roundedness of the historian makes us appealing for lots of things, especially if you pick fields that are relevant to current issues, right? So in my case, in studying the history of science, technology, and medicine, I drifted off to becoming a tech policy analyst as a way of making money also. So, you know, if, if the history field didn't work out for me, I do have an off-ramp, so to speak, but not a lot of people do. So this is a major decision. And again, I think you can really start thinking about it as a bachelor student, but I think really the, uh, the coalescing of your thinking on that will start to take place at the MA level. And remember, that's going to matter if you take an online program versus a traditional program. So if you are a if you if your goal is to pursue the PhD, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing an on, on, online MA. I think it's great experience. We have a great MA program here at SNHU. But if you are concerned is the workload going to translate from the online space, the asynchronous space to the traditional, you know, synchronous space, you might want to make sure that you feel comfortable you know, engaging in the curriculum of a traditional MA program, right? So you might want to reach out, uh, look at syllabi, look at course structures and stuff like that. So um, I don't think it necessarily you have to be in person to pursue the uh, PhD, uh, the MA, but for the PhD, as we obviously we know, there, there are maybe one or two online programs and I could not recommend either of them to anybody. Um, it's just not the same thing. You have to be in person. You have to have those rigorous discussions. And it, yeah. Yeah, you know, and remember, seminars last for three hours, and there's no lull in the conversation, right? Um, which, which is something to consider, also. Yeah, PhDs. I mean, one of the whole points of it is that they want it to be immersive, and that's why. Yeah, you can't have outside employment. That's why you you basically you have to dedicate all of your waking hours to this, because you pick up on the habits of, of historians, how different historians operate, you pick up on that through observation and interaction. You don't pick that up from a distance. And so, uh, yeah, the, in, in a way, PhD programs, you know, it's kind of like boot camp. You throw you, you, that's your life for a while because the, your, your job is to learn everything you can about the historical profession so that when you graduate, you're ready to take your place among among the stars, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. And so, yes, it's, it's, it's meant to be immersive. It's meant to suck up all of your time, all of your energy, which is why you have to think hard. Am I, you know, what's important to me? Do I have, you know, do I have a family that's going to be affected by me being gone for the next eight years almost? Right. Uh, you know, as I'm traveling to conferences and traveling to uh, archives and all of that, you know, are there, do you have, you know, do you have a family that's relying on you being there? Uh, that's, that's, that's a question you have to, that you have to answer. Um, so it, it's, there's lots of considerations to make when you're thinking about, do I want to get a, a PhD in history? Because it's not a simple answer. You need to be informed more than anything, and then you can make a decision. 
Um, but it is a very heavy decision to make. What about the rest of you? If a student asks, should I go to grad school? What do you think? What do you think you want to do with it? Are you going to teach? Are you going to go into work for the FBI and be, you know, do, uh, do something like that? Um, what do you, what, where do you see yourself going with it? And, and then they'll usually say, well, I don't know. What can I do with it? Like for me, I am the MA in this group. I did, I did work uh, uh, at the PhD level, never finished because I was, I was already teaching, raising children. Uh, um, it was too much. I couldn't work, have kids and do the PhD. And my husband and I was so, I was despondent. I was going to be doctor repass. And my husband sat me down and said, so if you die tomorrow, are you going to die unfulfilled? Uh, no. Are you teaching where you wanted to? I was already teaching at the college level. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I didn't need, I didn't need to go any further. And, and I, I have presented at conferences and I loved not having to publish and I loved not having, you know, that pressure because of the university I was at. If you didn't publish, you died and just went, yeah, I don't think I want to do my PhD. So but I think that would be the first question. What do you think you could do with it? And then you got to be ready to answer, well, what can I do with it? I was actually, I had a, I did a separate MA and then I went into my PhD program, which included another MA. Um, but uh, um, at my, during my first MA stint, um, I, I, I was actually encouraged to actually publish the MA thesis, which I did. And I, I think as an article form, and I think uh, that experience kind of prepared me for later on with the PhD dissertation. Um, you know, I've had colleagues actually uh, not complain, but wish that colleagues that have PhDs that wish they would have had, you know, gone in not just to a continuous MA PhD program, but perhaps to a terminal MA program. Um, you know, you get a, a taste of another department. And you also um, have a chance to uh, explore what you want to uh, what do you want what you want to research, um, and uh, you learn more, and you can focus on that rather than focused on okay, I'm going to get ABD and then I'm going to get that doctoral dissertation done. Um, although it does take more time, and um, perhaps with or without financial aid money, but I think um, for me, I, I, I learned so much in my MA program which is at actually a state school. I mean, I guess I would say UC for my PhD, but um, it, 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 the, the, the terminal MA program, I learned, you know, I mean, maybe it was my first going from the BA into history and I do seminar papers, you know, but I think I, I really learned a lot and opened, broadened my horizons to the point that when I got into the PhD program, I kind of knew I was more confident in of what I wanted to do. I could focus on all the topics that we've been discussing. Um, finding a topic and a research question. So you would encourage a student to get an MA? I would to a certain extent. I think uh, I think it really, the thing is though, this is based off of my experience. I'm sure there's a lot of people that, um, you know, Dean Denning was saying that this is kind of a case by case thing, but I think, uh, you know, I, I would I would definitely encourage them because uh, from, from my experience, I really, you know, it was quite a, a great passage in my life. I'm kind of, I, I guess I'm MA still because I'm not quite PhD, like I'm right in the middle. <laughs> so from, from my experience, um, I, I would definitely ask the question CBS for sure, because I think sometimes students think that your, your degree is based off how much you love history, like BA, I love history, MA, I really, really love history, PhD, I really, really love history, right? And, and, you know, in that, it, it, it's not so much of how much you love history or want to be a historian, because believe it or not, you can still be a historian with a BA. Like you might not be at universities. You, you might be doing maybe more public history work. And even that might you know require a certificate or an MA, but you can still get started. Really, when they start asking about MA and PhD is... Okay, it's not about how much you love history, although I think that's a component. I think I think there there are times in my program right now where I'm like, 
how much do I really love history? (laughs) This is overkill. How much do you like to read, write, research? That's really what we're doing, you know, to an extent at the MA level, but at the PhD level, are, do you want to be a researcher in this? You know, do you want to do, you know, how much do you want to publish? Because especially for the PhD, I mean that I'm reminded almost every time I meet with my PhD supervisors, um, you know, sometimes it's easier to kind of, you know, maybe ignore for that meeting than others, but how much do you want to publish, right? So for me, I mean, it really is getting into those questions again that I think CB asked and really asking, okay, but let's 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 kind of put history to the side for a minute. And how much do you want to do these other things? Because you will be doing a lot of that research, of that writing and reading. And sometimes I get students who say, you know, I, I love history. I don't like reading so much. I'm not a big reader, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I read my way through undergrad, but, you know, I'm just as happy maybe, you know, looking at documentaries and stuff, which you can do in an MA program. I mean, that's not off limits, but it's, it's still traditionally a lot of reading and writing. I'm, I'm going to jump in with the um, MA idea. I, I did my MA too, and there was an eight-year gap between my MA and my PhD, where I worked in museums and I taught, and it was really the teaching that pushed me to go into the PhD. So, you know, the MA is a good idea to kind of get a feel for, do I want to work in a battlefield as a uniformed interpreter or National Park Service, maybe teach in primary, secondary uh, maybe you'll find that in there. And and if you find yourself asking more questions about maybe I want to go more into publishing and, and up at higher levels, then maybe consider the PhD. I think it's good to have the gap between the two. I agree. I, I wouldn't trade the MA in for, for anything. And it, at the time, too, that was kind of where you went with history. You didn't. The PhD was very rare still mm-hmm. at that time period. And now it's a little more common, I think. And, and the other consideration beyond all of the academic stuff is how much money and time value do you want to put into something versus living too? Um, and that's going to play a part in your decision, really. But I love what you said, Eric. Don't be afraid of the gap. Um, I mean, truly, it. I... I I had a I think 10 11 year gap between MA and, and PhD program but for the for that decade you know I always kind of wondered about the PhD and could I do this and there was part of me that felt like you know I'll be frank there's part of me that felt like well I'm wasting time I'm getting older like who who am I to start you know I'm going to be frank about that right but I realized that a lot of the experience working and kind of figuring things out in my life helped me make a really, I, I feel like a, a, a well-informed decision. And that might not be for everyone. Some people just know, like they, they graduate with their BA or MA and they say, you know, I just know I want to do this. But for others who might be thinking I need a break and they're afraid to take that break, don't be, yeah, absolutely. Don't be afraid of the gap. Yeah. And and to add to that, to go kind of back to what we were talking about, research and writing, if you have a difficult day writing, uh, sometimes having that eight or 11 years of life experience, you'll say, okay, I can go back in. But if you're in your 20s, you might say, I'm leaving it for two weeks a month. And then it just drags on and on and on. So you you have a little more grit built in, too, if you have that gap. So true. And it's a lot of independent work as well. That's one of the things that I try to convey to students that, you know, especially I I found this with the MA for sure, but I'm finding it so much more with the PhD there. There's effectively little to no handholding. It's um, you set your own schedule. You have I mean, within the perimeters of the university, of course, in their timeline, you have your own timelines um, and, and there's there's. I don't think anyone's ever knocked on my door saying, well, how's that chapter going? How's this going? You know, you show up to your meetings with what you have prepared, right? And so 
that's something to consider for for students. Um, you know, it can be done, right? If if you want to do it, but it really is a lot of independent work because the idea is this is your baby, this is your project, right? This is this is your original research. So what have you been doing, basically? Yeah, and the day one meeting with my supervisor, he said, this is a lonely life and you're going to live it until it's done. And he said, some days your research is going to be your friend and some days it's going to be the enemy. But also take walks. That kind of idea. So... So let's talk a little bit about logistics. I think I think I want to spend a little bit more time on this topic than we have on some of the other topics, just because this comes up so often with students. And I think this this will probably end up being this is going to be a standalone podcast episode anyway. So I, I think it's fine to spend a little bit more time on it. But let's talk a little bit about the logistics of it. So if a student comes to you, and we've all sounds like all of us have experience with PhDs. So let's 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 go with kind of the PhD route since that's kind of the more immersive experience that we've been talking about. So if a student comes to you and says, should I get a PhD in history? CB's question obviously makes a lot of sense. What do you want to do with it? But let's start with some logistics. What advice do you give to students when it comes to how do I choose a PhD program? You know, where should I, where should I apply to? Um, let's, let's start with that kind of thing. So how did, how did you all get started in that process? When you decided, when you made the decision that, yes, I am going to pursue a PhD, where do you go from there? I continued with the same department I was already in. Okay. So, you know, I, I went for, I was at the same university, but here's my limitations. I was the mom. I was the wife. I couldn't go. I couldn't apply anywhere else. I had to stay there. And that's another reason why I didn't finish the PhD because I did the master's with the stipend, with the no job, you know, handling with the PhD. Now I needed that job. And if I gave up on that job, there wouldn't be a teaching job for me available. You know, I was afraid if I took the stipend with the PhD and being the mom, being the wife, and not the sole supporter of the family, I don't have the luxury of getting a job in another state, you know, and taking the family. So I wasn't willing to give up that job. So I was going to have to do the PhD on my own. I think that's another thing for a woman uh, to consider. Is this going to be you alone? Are there other people that you're going to have to factor in. Can you go to where the jobs are when, when you finally get that PhD? What if there's nothing here, you know, within an hour's drive? So, and you, and I you received know. funding for my MA, for my MA program. And I, um, I was kind of expecting uh, the same for my PhD program, which there was, but it was also not just internal and external fellowships, but also TA ships as well. But often those, you know, for my program, at least, you know, you needed really to, to apply and, um, you know, really understand the funding situations for the department, et cetera, et cetera. And in terms of employment too, you know, I've had colleagues that um, when they applied for, uh, they applied, basically they cast a wide net for PhD programs. And I think that can, that if you can, some can't, you know, um, particularly in the case of having children, et cetera, um, which I now have a kid. So I'm kind of going through that particularly with employment, but I think, um, I think, you know, I, in terms of jobs and employment, I have, I have colleagues who were in one profession and that was kind of they're connected to a PhD and they kind of wanted to go in. Let's say they're working for the National Park Service. They wanted to go into a certain uh, PhD program that was either connected to the National Park Service um, or around kind of sites, you know, around the United States that um, kind of fed into that. And this, the, my, you know, they, they received the PhD, they found a couple teaching jobs, but there was kind of a lull in their careers. And they kind of went back to the National Park Service. And by going back to their own profession with a PhD in history, they actually, you know, became quite successful. I'm just, National Park Service is, is kind of just a amorphous example, but like they became quite successful in, in their former profession. So in terms of, you know, employment and getting a job, it can, you know, it can, you know, having a job prior to the PhD, it can really, really help you. I don't know if that's Dean Denning's experience, but I think it, it, it can help you. Yeah, the so the, the big kind of logistical questions that I have if a student does make the decision that they want to do it is, yeah, you, you, you got to take into account where can you physically be in the, over the, for the next 
10 years or however long it's going to take for you to finish this project because you never know how long it's going to take mm -hmm. where can you you know where can you physically be what are the what are, what are your you know your your outside obligations family wise or whatever are you free to, are you, you know are you unencumbered and free to go wherever you want or are you bringing a spouse and kids with you because that's going to make a difference you know do you have to be where your family is so so i always recommend students to think about you know what are their what are their own limitations for that? And then beyond that, when it comes to deciding, you know, where you're going to apply, I mean, that's, that's a big decision too. What schools am I going to apply to? Uh, so, you know, you can, that, that, that's, that's a big decision on its own too. And a lot of students won't know how, how do I decide what schools to apply to? You know, if, if it's, if I am able to go anywhere in the country, how do I narrow it down to five or 10 or whatever a reasonable number of applications are? So how do I narrow that down? And, you know, it's, it's my, again, it's, it can be such a case by case thing. My kind of generic answer is, well, you know, the, the historians that you've identified as being important to your field, the topic you want to go to and where are they working? And maybe you can try those places. Maybe you'll get to work with those people because they, 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 are doing stuff that's interesting to you, it be, might be good for you to work with them. See, see if maybe, you know, maybe not, maybe that person isn't taking on grad students, so maybe not, but that's probably a good place to start. Um, and then when it comes to the financing part of it, the, the one thing that I always insist that, in, that students follow up on uh, and that, that I always kind of tell them not to do is do everything you can to avoid taking on debt in grad school. Most reputable institutions are going to pay you a stipend of some kind, and um, they're going to waive the tuition for you um, if it's a you know if it's a good program. And so, make sure that the place you go does that for you because you may take on some debt, but you don't want to you don't want to graduate from a PhD program owing two hundred thousand dollars in student loans because we're not going in, you're not going to go into a field where you're going to be able to pay that off very quickly. There's no high paying history field like that. Um, and then the other thing that I, that um, we've kind of touched on a little bit that I always insist to students think about is the job market afterwards. Because again, going back to CB's question about what do you want to do with it? The other kind of flip side to that is what are you going to be able to do with it? Yeah, I agree with that. I, I guess my students know me as a Debbie Downer by now because that is one of the first things that I mentioned to them, that getting that tenure track professor line is it, it is almost nearly next to impossible at this point. I mean, it's it's and, and I tell them, look, have have that plan B, right? Have probably even a plan C. And if at the end of the day you have A, B, and C and you're still okay with that and, and you know, we've talked about everything else, go for it. But I definitely mentioned to them kind of the, the concerns with academia right now, um, for sure. Another thing, too, would be to say, uh, to kind of couch that idea that, hey, you know, this is drying up and these, yeah. these are the options open to you. If you do not work in academia or whatever you're targeting with your PhD, does it still have intrinsic value to you? Can you just say, hey, this was worth challenging myself to see that I could argue a point and convince a committee? And I know for myself, I'm the best historian I can be. Yeah, and I think that is I, I think that's kind of central to all the other stuff that I was that I was saying, and I didn't put. And that's a good way to frame it. Is you know, at the end of all of this process, if you don't end up working as a historian, will you be okay with that? Is it still going to seem that's like true. it was a worthwhile experience to you or not? Actually, speaking to that, I um here uh you know at my full time job, I do we do have an adjunct on staff who is a tax accountant by day. But he got his MA in history just for fun. And he teaches a class for us. And he's fantastic and the students love him, right? And so, you know, sometimes be established in a totally different career and and let that MA kind of be that other life goal. And if if you can be happy doing your day job and then maybe adjuncting a couple of classes a semester, that's cool too. You know, I still see that as kind of like, hey, you're still a historian maybe just not full time, but 
you know, if that is something that you can live with, go for it. Like that's, that's great personal goal. And like I said, at the top of this, I think I've had colleagues that in terms of the gap that you were all mentioning, I've had previous careers and then go into a PhD program in history and unexpectedly find that their, their PhD in history actually helps them in their uh, previous careers. Again, I don't think that's for everybody, but for a couple of people that I know from my graduate program, it really helped them. Yeah, and that's the challenging part of having the conversation is that you just don't know how it's going to play out for any one individual student because the 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 outcomes vary so dramatically from person to person. Because you could tell the student that oh yeah, there's no way you'll get a PhD, you'll you'll get a tenure track job, and then somehow that student you know wins the lottery and does get a tenure track job. So it does. I mean, it does happen, but not nearly at the at the rate that we would like. And so it it is so hard to predict how it'll play out. Um, which is, I guess, kind of getting back to the idea that we just have to present the entire range of possible outcomes and just make sure that the student is comfortable with that and can can tolerate that that type, all those various possible outcomes. All right, and so I guess let's just let's wrap this up by saying, um, so Eric, was getting the PhD worth it to you? Yes, definitely. Yeah, it it really focused research skills that, as we said, um, maybe you go into a law firm and they're applicable there. I think it's good for anybody to Mm -hmm. try and challenge. And it's, again, something intrinsically that can't be taken away. Ryan, was it worth it to you? Yes, it was very much worth it to me, not just uh, in the field of history, but also expanding my horizons into other connected fields like uh, Native Studies which um, allowed me to uh, uh, move on in terms of, I teach both at the university and college levels. Um, I adjunct at the, the university level, but I do, I've begun to teach full-time at the community college level. And um, that's certainly without my PhD, and I'm not just talking about the pay levels, without my PhD and the courses that I took my PhD, I don't think I'd have that, uh, that uh, currently assistant professor job. That's my good news. Allison, sounds like you're you're still in process for it, but so far, so far is the process worth it for you? Absolutely, it's it's helping me in my current job. I wouldn't be able to get the promotions that I I will be eligible for when I when I finish it. Um, but also, it's just really made me think um, about the world in different ways and about how I approach not just kind of like the outside world, but like historical problems. And, and it's really helped me, I think, talk to my students in a different way as well about some of the historical concepts and, and, you know, issues that are out there. So both for personal and professional, absolutely. Great. Glad to hear it. The, uh, I, I, I'm tempted to try to reach out to one of my colleagues who thinks it isn't worth it <laughs> just, to, just to see if I get to get their take on it. But I, 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 but again, I think this, I mean, we all have, we all went in different directions. We're all doing history related stuff, but we're all going in different directions. And so I think it is interesting that we've all decided that it's worth it. And that's, that's great to hear. And I think for the most, most people, it is worth it. I think it's fairly rare to come across folks who think it wasn't worth it, but they are definitely out there. Um, before I do that, um, I just want to thank you all for agreeing to do all of this and uh, for for talking through all these various topics with me. And, uh, you know, thank you uh, again. Nice meeting you all. And thank you all for joining us today. After holding this group in the Working Historians Special Research Center in Antarctica these long past weeks, I can finally let these historians get back to their lives. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Amazon Music, Pandora, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes, and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. This podcast does not represent the views of Southern New Hampshire University, despite everybody's affiliation with it. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com. For Eric Greisinger, Allison Millward, CB Repass, Matt Chandler, and Ryan Tripp, I'm Rob Denning. So what's it going to be? Are you going to grad school?